You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Glad to be with you, Kyla, on this sunny Friday morning. Yeah, and uh, you got me into like a momentary panic at the beginning of this week when you sent me a um, link to a bill, Bill 28, yet another Motor Vehicle Act Amendment Act. (laughs) Uh, in the B.C. legislature, big honking, like, 50, 60-page bill, uh, read through the whole thing thinking, oh, my God, what are they changing now? Something's going to be huge in this. Well, particularly given the fact that we already had Bill 23, which is a Motor Vehicle Act Amendment Act, and so this is the Motor Vehicle Act Amendment Act 2 in the same session. And thought, maybe, maybe they finally listened to me and they're amending the distracted driving law to make it make sense and to make it more clear. Uh, or maybe they're making something about the IRP scheme more... Worse. <laughs> more unjust. They're adding more injustice. Maybe this has to do with changes to traffic court. One wonders... Could it? What could it be? Big, thick, 70-page... And what was it, Paul? It was a whole big nothing burger. Essentially, they are just altering the definition of the owner of a vehicle that is leased and the definition of a leased vehicle in order to change the way that certain requirements under the Act operate when it comes to vehicles that are being leased or rented. And so, and a million consequential changes to the act to be able to yeah. introduce. Change, changing the, the term regarding yeah. lease. So our first story this week is the nothing. It's, the nothing it's a lot of stress. A lot of stress. But Bill 23 is also an issue here this week because um, I note last night that Janet Austin was uh, busy signing uh, legislation um, and uh, giving it royal assent. I couldn't find on the internet whether or not that Bill got royal assent, but I suspect they will update it within the next day or so, and probably by Monday, Tuesday, we'll know. Oh, yeah. Probably we will have an answer uh, about Bill 23 and the changes. I mean, it doesn't really change anything substantially for our practice, but it does change your obligations as a driver. So make sure to check out our episode on that if you have questions about what your new obligations will be as a driver. Yes, and you'll be able to... uh facilitate driving your robot down the street now sure yeah now there's here too by the way there is a bigger uh news story or i guess not news story a bigger story related to driving law in british columbia um a case that was released from uh the bc supreme court um this week and uh this case is actually very interesting because it has broad implications for the validity of potentially hundreds, if not thousands, of traffic tickets that are currently in the system. Lawyer words. I was about to say, this one, Kyla, has broad implications. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it does. So, oh, sure. This was uh, Mr. Kevin Robinson, uh, who received a traffic ticket for disobeying a traffic control device. Um, and that 
that's a really broad charge. This Sylvania traffic control devices, traffic control devices designed, uh, described in the Motor Vehicle Act as being like any sign or marking or direction um, that's erected under like a municipal authority or a treaty government or a few other areas of authority um, that tells you that regulates the movement of vehicles on the roadway. It can be all sorts of things. Can be a can be a sign that uh, that keeps you from turning left during certain hours. It could be a speed uh, limit. It, it could be a speed limit. It could be crossing over a, a line. Yep. Um, you know, it's a it's a device intended to control traffic. Yep. No, so no left turn signs. Pretty pretty open, and it's a two demerit ticket. Yeah, a hundred nine dollars or hundred dollars. $121 fine. So it's not a huge consequence, but for a lot of people who need to maintain a completely clean driving record or who are on the edge of losing their license due to points, it can have significant consequences. Well, if you've got a three-point ticket and you get one of those in the same year, you're suddenly now paying driver point premium on your birthday. You get two of those in a year. You pay the driver penalty point premium. Four points. Yes. Yes. So the case had to uh, deal with the question of whether or not the description of the offense, disobey traffic control device, was sufficiently clear on the face of the ticket to inform the person of what they had done wrong. Basically, because it's such a broad offense, you know, you, you, have, you need to have some sort of notification of what you did. Did you cross a, a line? Did you disobey a sign? If it's just disobey traffic control device... On the ticket, does it tell you what you did well enough that you understand what the allegation is? Yes. And uh, the Offense Act, Section 96 sub 3, says that an information, traffic ticket, uh, must contain sufficient detail of the circumstances of the alleged offense to give the defendant reasonable information with respect to the act or omission that could be proved against the defendant and to identify the transaction referred to. So Mr. Robinson applied to quash the information, essentially saying, you know, I don't have sufficient information about what traffic control device I disobeyed. The officer for the Crown argued that the information was sufficiently particularized because not only did it say that he committed the offense contrary to that provision, but he was also provided with disclosure to tell him that the sign that he disobeyed was a speeding sign. And so, therefore, he was um, he was given enough information about the type of offense that he had committed. And the court, on his original hearing, agreed with the officer and said, yeah, that's sufficient. It's good enough. Uh, you only have to have uh, the information about, uh, about the charge and the description set out uh, in the regulations. Um, you don't have to have any more than that. And the court, um, on appeal, disagreed. And interestingly, the court went through a lot of the Supreme Court of Canada decisions on the sort of sufficiency of informations. Um, and then at paragraph 12 says, I'm going to be overreaching here somewhat. I like this. Perhaps to say that I am aware that in traffic court things happen quickly. I am aware that in traffic court there is rough justice, so to speak. But the fact that things happen quickly and that the court is set up to deal with a high volume of tickets and or informations in a short period of time only adds to the need to ensure that violation tickets meet the necessary provisions of Section 96 sub 3 of the Offense Act. 
In other words, it only makes it more important at that level, where adjournments are probably rare and where the expectation of litigation is not full battle litigation, but short, fast and expedited litigation. On that day. Yeah. It is all the more important that the tickets provide detailed information sufficient to comply with Section 96 sub 3. And so uh, the judicial justice in that case was found to have erred, both because he didn't consider that provision. He didn't consider the case law uh, in the area. And um, he wasn't essentially Mr. Robinson wasn't even given a fair trial as a result of that. Um, the court did reject one of the arguments that was advanced by Mr. Robinson, uh, which was uh, that um, uh, the principle of ju judicial comedy uh, essentially says that only um, trial judges should only depart from previous decisions at their same level under limited circumstances. And those circumstances were that the earlier decision had been undermined by an appellate decision for the earlier decision had been undermined in a change in law, if it's a statute law, or that the earlier decision was careless, inadvertent, or off-the-cuff, non-reasoned decision. And there were two cases that were argued by Mr. Robinson before the judicial justice. Um, and essentially, one was a description of disobey sign. One was disobey traffic control device. In both of them, the tickets were quashed because of the failure to properly identify uh, or describe the offense. Um, and uh, the court um, found that those cases had essentially set a precedent before the judicial justices as to what the rules are. Um, and now we have a B.C. Supreme Court case uh, that says that these are the rules. So all the traffic court justices should follow it going forward. We'll see. We'll see. But this does, now that we have a B.C. Supreme Court precedent where it makes it pretty makes clear. it pretty clear that the rules are that you have to provide all of the information about what specific sign or traffic control device or signal a person failed to comply with. I wonder, like, one of two things could happen. Um, one, any cases that are in the system that are not properly identified could potentially be preemptively canceled by the registry. We see that sometimes when the um, when the tickets aren't sufficiently described. That's possible. It's possible. I doubt, however, that the registry is actually going to undertake to look at every single traffic ticket, recognizing there's probably 10,000 traffic tickets in the system at any given time. Fair. Yeah, it's probably right. Maybe more. The second thing is judicial justices might take it upon themselves to quash the tickets when they come before them. I don't know that that's the right step, though. You know, I think uh, police officers in these circumstances where they've issued traffic control device tickets can contact the person, can notify them, can provide them with complete notice of what they say the offense is. Well, they would have to you know, amend the ticket and reserve it. Do they have to or can they just... Yeah, because the information has to particularize it and the ticket is the information. So it's not enough to say, oh, yeah. But, but if you've notified the person beforehand, this is what I'm going to amend it to and then amend it on that day. Yes. And and tell them, then they have notice. Yeah. So I think you can do it. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you were to notify them and then amend it and the amendment um, is granted, that's fine. But people would also have the right to oppose an amendment in court. Absolutely. 
And if the amendment... And seek an adjournment at the amendment. Yeah, I mean, if it is amended and their defense hinged on the defective ticket, then they could seek an adjournment. Yes. One wonders if the amendments will be allowed. I just don't know where a police officer is going to write in on a ticket right now um, what the what the allegation is. There's not the space there on the information. Well, you can write it in below. Disobey traffic control device. Brackets. Brackets. No left turn sign. Yeah. Um, But I wonder about e-tickets as well, because you can't, it's hard to amend an e-ticket by hand. No, but I think they can probably change their, what they enter. Uh, I mean, it might be a drop box or something like that, that they've got right now to pick the offense. Uh, I suspect that's probably the case. Um, you know, they're just doing it on a computer, right? Um, they can certainly have that Dropbox amended in short order to have more things or to have a space where they can type in what the allegation is. But on previously issued ones, yeah, might be an issue. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what the court does. Um, I do think that there is a possibility that, you know, because judicial justices have especially wide latitude and traffic court to control the process. And because they're dealing often with self-represented individuals, I would hope that they would raise the issue. I hope so. Yeah. Um, it will also be interesting to see whether or not this is appealed. It was a uh, uh, senior crown counsel made the argument. I don't know that it would. I mean, to me, it, it's so clear that I would, I doubt it would be successful if the crown appealed this to the uh, BC court of appeal. But it was uh, it was something they obviously understood the implications of because they brought out one of their bigger guns, Rob McGowan, uh, to argue it. So it will be interesting to see how this one plays out. Yes. Well, uh, that is going to be the first thing that I have to deal with in traffic court today. In fact, so this afternoon, maybe I'll have an update for people about how this type of thing is playing out on the ground level in next week's podcast. Paul, it's now time for us to take a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice Kraken Eric McGraken! Welcome to the McGracken Moment. I want to say a few more things about No Fault. And if you've listened to my rants long enough, you'll know that no fault means no fair. But here's the latest example of how British Columbians are getting shortchanged under no fault. Now, this has nothing to do with injuries. This has to do with fault for a crash in the no fault era. Now, you would think fault doesn't matter because you get these no fault benefits. But if you're found at fault, you could be paying upwards of $8,000 in increased premiums and other financial consequences. So fault does matter. It could hit you in the pocketbook. Now, under the old system, if you're in a crash and ICBC said you're at fault, it really didn't matter because you had the right to go to court. Even if you weren't injured, you could sue the other motorist in small claims court or BC Supreme Court if you had something serious to sue over. 
and a judge would decide who's at fault on a balance of probabilities, and that was that. The judge's ruling would be binding on ICBC. It would override ICBC's internal decision. Those days are gone. You now have to go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Now, you might be thinking that's quick, it's online, and it's fair. And in many ways, that would be an okay solution. But ICBC decided to stack the deck against you. Now, if you don't like ICBC's decision, you have to wait for the decision first to be made so it has importance where before it didn't. Once that decision is made, you've only got 90 days to challenge it. And instead of a fresh hearing on the merits where you have to prove that the other motorist is at fault or partially at fault, you not only have to discharge that burden, but you also have to prove that ICBC acted improperly or unreasonably in how they came up with their decision. So you've got a further burden that has to scrutinize ICBC's decision-making process. And if you can't get over that burden, you can't win. So, folks, we've got a stacked deck. ICBC is now not just an insurance company, but they seem to be the judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to deciding who's at fault for a crash. Thank you. That's, well, I don't know. I just, I'm so angry about this situation with ICBC and the fact that the government can just continue to amend the law and write regulations to make it harder and harder and harder for you to litigate to protect your rights, even when it comes to determinations of fault. And creating this absurdly high standard. Well, uh, at one point we saw the BC Supreme Court saying that you couldn't oust their jurisdiction. Um, and, um, you know, I've been saying for years, the more that we legislate, the less um, the court takes it upon itself to create tests. Um, the court might start taking upon itself to create tests to deal with some of these things because they're going to start seeing the unfairness in it. Mind you, they haven't seen the unfairness in the IRP scheme. So <laughs> yeah. I guess the government can get away with a lot. It's fascinating. Look, you know, looking over at Alberta and trying to warn people like provincial governments have basically, once they've got a majority, they have unfettered power, uh, subject only to like the charter. Um, and there's no Senate, right. Uh, and the law just gets signed. So uh, they, it's amazing what they can get away with. Yeah, but only for four years, because if they try and get away with too much, they get voted out. I mean, I think... But in Alberta, once in my lifetime, they were voted out. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but Paul, I also wanted to talk about my favorite thing ever. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. And this one, this might be my favorite ridiculous driver of all time. Like this might top the guy fucking his car. Uh, this might top the, the DJ. The DJ is <laughs> in his truck. Trucker DJ. Uh, this is a man who was arrested for DUI wearing a Bud Light costume. I saw that. It was also on your Weird and Wacky Wednesdays this week. It was, uh, it's because it's such a good one. 
Um, yeah, so he looks like he's doing field sobriety tests in a in a a Bud Light can. Um, it's basically it's uh, I, I mean it's 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 the ultimate. It's the ultimate. Yes. And, uh, even even better is there's a photo with the article and you can see the guy doing the field sobriety test, but he's doing it wrong. And I don't know if the officer is like not. I'm right not giving the right instructions because his arms are out to his side and the instructions are to keep your arms at your side when you are doing the test. So. Well, it looks like it might be uncomfortable with that beer can there. You might end up with a bunch of aluminum in your armpit or something. Can you uh, can you argue that like you couldn't perform the test properly because you were in your costume? I mean, I just keep thinking like uh, I explain this one to the judge. Even if you're uh, even if you're, you know, acquitted or something like that, you have to run a trial where. You know, the evidence is that you're in the beer can. Yeah. Uh, you know, even if you negotiate something out and you have to do a plea, yes, your honor, I was wearing a beer can. I mean, I guess the point is, uh, if you've got a beer can costume, that's great. Take it off before you drive. Put <laughs> <laughs> in the trunk. Yeah. But where it can't be seen. Anyway, Bud Light has had uh, has had uh, interesting press in the last little oh, yeah. while, and I've been a Bud Light's been through the rigor. I've been a bit of a Bud Light drinker in the last little while, just because of it. I sort of felt sorry for the brand. Um, this does not necessarily enhance the brand, but maybe it does. Maybe it does. It it certainly overshadows the other sort of Bud Light hatred discussions. Well, it's good to have a different discussion about Bud Light. Yes. Well, the discussion about Bud Light should be that it's lousy beer. But that's that's an opinion issue. Um, that's our podcast. If you need to reach us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.